Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I am the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Today, my guest is Stephanie Soule, who is an assistant professor in social sciences and health policy. Um, Her research interests yoga, mind-body therapies, integrated medicine, self-management, heart psychology, cancer survivorship, among other things. So we've got a lot to talk about, us being both yogis. So (laughs) welcome. Thank you. So I, I brought you on. I'd, I'd seen you at the Encore uh, meeting in, at Myrtle Beach, and that gave me the idea of of getting you on the podcast and talking about um, this new study, the respite, 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 yeah, respite study. So why don't we just get started and tell me about that and how that came about? Yeah, well, the, how that came about might take a while, but <laughs> okay, that's yeah. fine. Our team was recently funded to do a large efficacy study, so to test whether or not or um, whether one supportive intervention works better than the other. And so it's our remotely delivered supportive programs for improving surgical pain and distress study, RESPIT, we call it for short. And we're look, yes, we're looking to determine if mindful movement and breathing um, works as compared to life impacts reflection for improving um, post-operative pain, psychological distress, and other surgical outcomes among women undergoing surgery for suspected gynecologic malignancies. So it's a focused group. Um, yeah, so that's like a brief yoga intervention compared to caring attention and writing, essentially. Okay, can you explain that a little more? Cause yeah. You kind of, so the, the yoga There's part I get, yeah. and then and the, the other part is, and it's all about like non-pharmacological approaches right. to pain management at the end of the day, right? Or Right, so we have, you know, it's important to have a surgical procedure, right? It's life-saving potentially for people. And we also know that there's different experiences that pe- that come along with that for many people, like dis- discomfort such as pain or feeling stressed about the experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're aiming to integrate some mindful movement and breathing or, the, or another supportive program where people can write, talk about how it's affecting them, for example, and writing about it um, and coordinating that with clinical care so that um, we can reach people that maybe don't have the resources to go seek that out in addition to their clinical treatment. So um, it's really brief. We're, we're providing the um, interventions, is what we call the programs, um, via like a, a video conference and, or, and a self-directed video, like a video people can take home and do on their own. Um, so we really hope that it's easy for everybody. To and what is on that video? Is it a, a, it's a... Yeah, so the video is really gentle movements that can be done in a chair or bed for the Mindful Movement and Breathing Group. Um, and as it, as it kind of describes, some um, relaxation techniques and breathing techniques as well. Um, it's pretty short. It's 20 minutes or less to do each time. So hopefully people can fit it in where, where they have time. Um, they, people like the flexibility. So we did a pilot study of this and we've gotten positive feedback and it seems to, um, both of the, um, programs seem to help people in different ways. Mm-hmm. So this study is set up. So you have the one group is doing that. What's your control group? Just, they don't do anything. Well, we, we're calling it a comparison group because it also seems to be helpful, um, for different people in different ways that are, um, like talking with somebody, almost like a brief counseling, um, and then. Um, writing about how it's impacting them. So it was like a self-reflection group. 
So kind of journaling. Yeah. So if you compare those two yeah. groups, what are you learning from, from that so um, far? So we haven't started yet. We're no. getting, we just got the funding that started in August and we've been hiring our staff and getting everybody trained and those kind of things. So we're excited to start. And what's ex- another exciting component is that we're collaborating with our colleagues in Charlotte as well. So we're having a two site here in Winston-Salem and, and a site in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell me about other ways that, um, that, that you've approached that in research or, or any other thing that you're working on. Like, how did you get yoga involved and how did you get meditation and, and how did you get interested in all that? Yeah, so um, this is where I get to tell more of a story. <laughs> um, I was in um, grad school. I studied social and health psychology in Stony Brook in New York and I was doing a lot of studying how people cope with different illness situations with a focus on people with cancer. And I was doing a lot of desk work where I was sitting by myself doing what we call meta-analysis or like doing a lot of review papers and that kind of thing. And I was thinking, well, how can I get out there in the world and teach how to cope with stress without you know, a more of an advanced degree? I was getting a, a doctorate in studying psychology, but I wasn't clinical psychologist. So... I found a yoga teacher in the area who was teaching people with cancer what I view as stress and coping, like how to breathe deeply and do relaxation. And um, and she also had a physical therapy degree. So I looked into how to become her, <laughs> or at least be able to do that type of work in the community. Um, and then I also did a, so I did one training that was kind of like a chair yoga training for people with cancer. And then I moved to New York City for um to continue my research. And um, I did a, another training there where people were teaching integrative, it was called Urban Zen Integrative Therapy. They were teaching in hospitals. And so they would do things like um, gentle movements in a bed or meditation in a bed. And I saw, and I was also, there's kind of a lot of serendipity there, um, working with an advisor at the time that was doing hypnosis in the hospital setting. So I started to realize that this can be integrated as part of clinical care. It didn't have to be a separate thing where people were going to classes, that we could bring this to the the clinical setting, which, um, you know, it's like bringing the retreat center to the clinical setting is kind of my, my visual for mm. what I hope we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is the latest research? I mean, what I think we're finding out more and more of how the body and mind communicate. And we've also, I've always heard mind over matter, but I also mm-hmm. heard like it's a two way, like the body can tell the mind things if, if like somatic experiences and all that stuff. I, I listened yeah. to a podcast recently and they were talking about, you know, the power of the mind, the power of the body to help the mind, you know, create new connections, rewire, you know, kind of the Joe Dispenza stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but they do a lot of, a lot of research in meditation and just how it's creating new pathways in the myelin and the synapse connections and stuff like that. So what, what can you tell us about, like, where are we with, um, what do we know about how important is or important yoga, movement, meditation, breath, work, just, you know, calming the mind, you know, how important mm-hmm. that is in healing and what do we know? Yeah, so what would be, so I'll focus on what um, is most relevant to what we're doing. So, what we knew going into this study, um, there's great research out there already that mindfulness meditation helps reduce pain in at least experimental settings. And so, there, a lot of that work came out awake in other places. Um, and so, 
so we started with that. So the, our program has a lot of foundation in, in that. And um, so, and also with cancer, for example, we know that the class structure, like going to a class for an hour, eight, for eight weeks, for example, um, was helping people with a lot of other symptom management issues. And so um, we're hoping that combining those two will be helpful in this situation. And also, um, more theoretically, but in the surgical context, you know, getting people that they're aiming to just clinically get people breathing deeply to reduce complications like pneumonia. They're aiming to get people moving to reduce blood clots and, and, and reduce pain, of course. So we aim to complement what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, other mind body type work that I'm pretty familiar with is like around expectations. So the hypnosis researcher I worked with was really of the mindset and showed a lot of evidence that just changing what people expect to feel will change the outcome. So if with hypnosis you say you will feel less pain and somebody's relaxed and they believe that, um, they will feel less pain. It's pretty amazing. So you can measure that. I expect to feel <laughs> this much pain and how much they have after. And so amazing there, that's a mind, right, mm -hmm. influencing your body's experience. Um, so it is pretty powerful. Yeah, I yeah. find it fascinating. I mean, it just the fact that you can trick the mind that the body's not going through something traumatic and not feeling the the stimuli or whatever. So, I mean, are we kind of going back to the future? I mean, like like we've we've gone through this age of pharmaceuticals and having all these medicines that try to alleviate pain, but we always had the superpower within us. It seems like just movement and, and breath. Yeah, I think it's a huge compliment, right? So I think a part of what I'm interested in doing is taking some of what you said has, it's ancient wisdom that um, we can really be learning from and applying in the current context that I think we've let go or, or just to re measure and show that it has value still um, that it can add to. So like in our pilot, which of course is we still need to do this larger study we saw that on top of um, really we're doing some of the best evidence-based care here at Wake, where we did the pilot, we could still improve pain on, on top of that, right? So that's pretty impressive that there's still room to help in, even after doing the best pain management with pharmaceuticals that we can be doing. So. Now, how do you control like for... Uh, like other factors, it, it seems like it's, it would be challenging because it's like once people get into feeling better, just doing something as uh, seemingly simple as yoga and breathing, it kind of tunes you into other aspects of holistic health. For instance, like Ayurvedic nutrition and medicine. So you start maybe eliminating toxins and eating better and just calm you know your, your your dispositions may be a lot calmer um your cortisol levels may fall as a result and so all those other things that that combined with the i guess the practice of being healthy just kind of creates momentum and and builds upon that so to me that would be a challenge in any kind of research is like well how much is it just the variable that we we're adding and how much of it is like someone growing and expanding in their own health? Yeah, I think that's great. There's a couple, two things that come to mind listening to you. Um, so in the research, how we control for it is we randomize people to two different groups and we hope that 
people in both groups will have a balance of all these extra factors that we can't control everything, right? Because mm. it's real life. They're, they're all having surgery. Some might have um, a larger incision than others. Some pe- might, people might you know, have different heights and weights and all these other things, even like that. So we hope by randomizing people that some of that is evened out. Um, and then what you are getting into, which I think is a very interesting component of yoga is like, or even the other group, their self-reflection group is um, as you become more aware of yourself, I believe that leads to understanding discrepancies from where you are to where you would like to be. And it can motivate a host of behaviors. It can, you know, and so I think, um, but yeah, so th- I'd say in this short study, we don't expect a lot of that to happen because they're recovering from surgery and they're probably not going to run out. Maybe they will, but hmm. hopefully in bo- equally in both groups <laughs> if they do um, and do too many other things. Um, and there's some a little bit of research, and I think it would be great to do more about kind of the snowball effects of mm-hmm. once you start one healthy behavior, how it leads to others. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in coaching, yeah. I, I'm recently yeah. board certified health coach, and okay. and um, you know that's one of the things. Just these little steps start building the momentum towards healthy change, and when people get that, you know, their advocacy and their confidence level high, they they continue to to take on more and more things that make them healthier. So I, I could see how that would build on. Now, yeah. how did you pick? Well, you seem your demographic female, right? Mm-hmm. And then the particular type of surgery, or and and how did how how was that decision made? Yeah, and I'd love to talk about the coaching too. Okay, um, well, we will. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it was sort of so it was about ten years ago. I was here as a postdoctoral fellow before I left for my first faculty position, and um, it was serendipity at the time that there was a nurse with in the gynecologic oncology group that was interested in working with us. And so really the population happened that way. And as I learned more about it, we stuck with that because um, women are particularly vulnerable to chronic pain compared to men. Um, And so we were hoping by addressing that symptom in that population, we were kind of targeting a more at risk group. Um, So yeah, I think that that's how that came up, out to be. But it could yeah. apply to just about anybody. Though. Oh, yeah. So we just started with this group. My, my research focuses with cancer. And if we find that this helps, it could, you know, hysterectomies are very similar. It could, any other surgery potentially, mm-hmm. it could apply and help with. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, how did you get, um, you, you mentioned the, the, someone in the community that was in New York that was doing yoga now had you been a practitioner before then yeah so i somewhat learned in parallel with i mentioned it being in grad school and then deciding i wanted to pursue yoga teacher training so i did that and then as i progressed in my research i also did more trainings in yoga and in health coaching Mm -hmm. um and the way that they're somewhat tied for me i think the way at least in my research i've focused on yoga as like a way to manage or regulate acute experiences like stress or like so self-regulation under stress is like um coping Mm -hmm. um so managing symptoms or yeah or or distress and then i like coaching for kind of where i'm applying it is after people are done with treatment that then they have their whole life to think about how do i want to manage a you know a broader lens um and so i think what they have in common is somewhat you were saying like that 
mindfulness or self-reflection component. Like, okay, um, noticing how I'm feeling and what I need and, and how to do that, deal with that. So, um, yeah, I think coaching is another great tool. Mm-hmm. For, yeah. So tell me, you've done some coach training? Yeah, I, I did training years ago, and I'm revisiting it now to mm-hmm. get the newer certification that wasn't available then. And, um, yeah, so I really, in general, my, I guess what's holding all my interests together is, like, wanting people to become more engaged in their health. And so you sort of said, like, after they get little successes from, like, oh, I can, this breathing can help my distress. Like, what else can I do for myself? Um, and so I think health coaching is a great way to explore with people what's most important to them and what they do want to try next. What has been your experience with cancer patients? Like once they get the diagnosis and go through treatment and so I've heard before a lot of people say, well, that's really changed my life for the better. I mean, they applied a meaning to it that said, maybe I needed this to get me to this next level of health or wellness. You know, have you experienced some of that with, with your Yeah, patients? there's another woman here I work with closely that studied, like, post-traumatic growth, they call it, yeah, or yeah. benefit-finding, or some of the psychology words we use for that. Um, yeah, it's both, right? Like, they're going through a very stressful experience, and we don't want to say that they have to be positive about that or anything. And some people find that they grow from that, that they it makes them reflect, and they have, they're open to new possibilities for... Um, how their life can be going forward. And it, it's, um, I think part of the reason I'm interested in working with this group is they can, people that have been diagnosed with a, you know, a life threatening illness can be more open to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that post-traumatic growth. Um, was it Ray Dalio says pain plus reflection equals progress. So the reflective part, the journaling about, you know, what, instead of running from it, go deep, you know, meet it head on and figure out what it is that, you know, that causes you to, A, you know, maybe overeat or be, you know, not be motivated for movement or uh, relationships or, you know, whatever the issue is, um, or a cancer diagnosis um, that, you know, that would cause you to, like, really, really take stock of your life you know, your vision of the future and that kind of thing that um, I think just by default you get more mindful, but then put this on top of it, you know, a, a formalized program of movement and breathing and things like that. I mean, that should be a part of all treatment. <laughs> In a, an ideal world, yeah, we'll, we'll work toward that. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, ultimately, I mean, that would be kind of the goal of your research, right? Yeah, the vision is to have someone that has the skill set to facilitate this, right? Like how do we help people become more actively involved in their own health? And um, so it could be a yoga instructor or a coach or somebody with combined skills that can teach both mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, can, can, can walk th- somebody through that process. Like how do you um, set a goal and how do you make sure it's in alignment with what's important to you in life? That mm-hmm. kind of thing. Now, yeah. what, have in, in just in your experience with the pilot study and things that you've done before, um, you know how just anecdotal evidence suggests what that it works pretty well for most people. 
Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We collect a lot of qualitative data. So that's a, a fancy way of saying we interview people and organize their responses so mm-hmm. that you know, we can see themes. And we have been very encouraged by their feedback. So that's, you know, part of the reason we're going forward. And we incorporate that feedback to improve what we're doing. Um, so yeah, people will, what's great about that kind of information, because our studies aren't large enough to look at statistical significance yet, is that they'll say things like, oh, this helped me with my pain. So they'll link together what we did with what it's helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, or this helped me sleep better. I did this before I went to bed. So now I know um, I can sleep better when I do, you know, maybe even the writing. Um, so that's encouraging. And I think people really appreciate that they're being cared for in addition to their physical body so that there's people paying attention to the other parts of their life that are being affected by what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how much of that kind of compounding effect have you noticed? Like when people start feeling that they have some power over their well-being, you know, do, do you see that take off and, you, you know, is it encouraging? It must be encouraging. Yeah. To see. Well, that was what hooked me. Um, I was, I was the one teaching yoga in New York when I was first starting out. And um, there was a man who I don't believe had done yoga before, and we were teaching him in the hospital setting. And he said, this is you know, something I can do for myself while I'm sitting here. And so much is being done to me, right? And so that was just the, oh, yes. Like, mm-hmm. we're giving him con- some control back, you know. And so I think that was really empowering for people. Have you met any resistance um, from... Or let me back up. How, yeah. First of all, how do you recruit um, for the study? How do you recruit patients? And then what are some of the uh, pushback you might get? Because I know, like, just even in, from doing coaching, and I talk about mindfulness and meditation, but I just don't have time. And, you know, I don't have 30 minutes. And I don't, I'm like, do it in 30 seconds. You know, I mean, I don't think there's a magic uh, formula for how much time you spend as long as you're quieting down and slowing down and being mindful of the present moment, right? So what kinds of resistance have you seen? Well, that's interesting you bring that up. So there's part of it, right, that most of the research has been much longer in uh, programs, like an hour yoga mm-hmm. class, for example. So I really appreciate um, there were people paving the way, um, other researchers that have done more brief interventions and found they're helpful, but I do think that's a mind shift. Mm -hmm. Also, how we recruit is we really do coordinate with the healthcare providers, and they mention the study as part of their treatment options. Um, And we've learned that we present it as mindful movement and breathing or a program to support you, and then we describe that you may be doing gentle movements or journaling, and, and we aim to, like, be clear about what would be done but not necessarily use the word yoga because then people imagine much more physical activity than we're actually doing Mm -hmm. or more, you know, extreme physical postures. Um, We're just having people sit in a chair moving Mm -hmm. in coordination with their breath. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then in general, again, like we we do want to be open about what they will actually be doing because some people do have beliefs that aren't consistent with what we're doing. So Mm -hmm. that's fine too. They can choose not to. To participate, yeah. so they, you know, they they see some like nefarious or, or just distrust of the approach, and yeah, it conflicts with their. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what uh, I mean, what what what's the funnest part of all this for you? Yeah, the best part's getting the feedback from 
really usually the yoga instructors about or the coaches about how much they feel like it's helping people mm -hmm. and um because at this point i don't get to be the one coaching as part of my research i have to be kind of blinded to what's happening mm -hmm. um so it's really rewarding to get the feedback that um yeah that we're hopefully improving some people's outcomes and the teachers are doing it in group settings or is it one-on-one this is all one-on-one one-on-one okay yeah Okay. And how do you recruit teachers for that? So I've had a relationship through some of the trainings I've done, even with people in Winston that have done the same ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so I start with my relationships, and then they mm -hmm. have other people they know, usually. Okay. Yeah. And how many yoga teachers are you talking um, about for your... We have three that are going to help with this study. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And how many participants do you hope to enroll? We hope to enroll total, like in both groups, um, 160 across mm -hmm. both sites. Okay. So, yeah. Well, what leading up to this, like I noticed you had a long list of publications and stuff. What's been some of the funnest research that you've been involved in and most rewarding for you? Well, so we're touching on the ones that are really the ones that came from my own experience and interest. And so these are the most rewarding. And it's been, as I mentioned, like 10 years to get this study to the stage, right? Mm -hmm. So there's small pilots that have led and we've had to get funded to get to this point. So um, I also enjoy collaborating. It's just that it's kind of rewarding to have an idea take shape over time too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what have you learned most about uh mind-body approaches in an allopathic world, let's say. Wow. You know, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom, oh, yeah, you want to do this woo stuff. But, um, you know, I think the more and more people are embracing uh, the fact that we have some control over our, our, our inner workings uh, through mind-body connections. Um, what have you learned most about that whole process and dealing with, you know, conventional medicine and, and also, uh, you know, more of the mind-body, mindfulness stuff? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I I see myself as somewhat of a translator between the two worlds. Okay. I do think that there's learning, say, statistical, you know, outcomes and how to communicate with one community in that language and how to understand, you know, the Sanskrit for the other community has been helpful. Mm -hmm. Um Really, what it comes down to, I feel like everybody just wants to feel like we're offering something of value and that it's, you know, worth their patient's time mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And so as long as we can convey it, they, I've found most healthcare providers very interested in anything that can help people that they're working mm -hmm. with. So, yeah, I think it's just a trust issue as long as they feel like they'll be safe and well cared for. And how are yeah. you recruiting patients? Just yeah, so we just, we're part of the clinical team when, when we start doing the research. So we'll go to their meetings and say, you know, who's eligible. Can you tell them about this? Can we go in and talk more after? Oh, so they make sure that, um, people know about the study mm -hmm. and it's really a partnership. And people yeah. are pretty receptive to it. Yeah. You know, general. some more than others. So some people will really tell every patient they have and you know, mm -hmm. others we can remind them. So, yeah. <laughs> well, tell me, let's yeah. go into like just what, mindfulness and yoga is meant to you and how have you apply that in your your day-to-day -day? yeah I really aim to live in integrity with my work I think most of the people that teach yoga practice themselves which is part of what I think is special about it um, so I have a regular yoga meditation practice um, and for me that's sometimes just you know 20 minutes a day like you said I don't think it has to be 
a long practice all the time. And for me, it helps to be more um, reflective, like you said, and, and to go through my day at a little bit of a more uh, more rhythmic pace than, you know, frazzled like we can get. So I think it helps set the tone for my day. And um, I find it valuable. So at least I feel like I'm helping to get out there something that may be useful for other people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long have you been doing? Regularly place? since, I mean, on and off, of course, never mm-hmm. perfectly regularly, but since I became a teacher in around 2008. So okay. a bit... Yeah, <laughs> so you're a seasoned professional. Yeah, I've really evolved over time with my academics and yoga, kind of in parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what if you could fast forward ten years? What would you want the world to look like? You know, let's say this research is wildly successful. Um, you've designed some more studies, and it's you know the evidence just says, hey, if we do this, patients recover faster, and they get healthier, and they want to do more. Um, what would your role be like in 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 the world? Oh, well, you know, the next few years before you know, as we work toward that, I, there is this idea of implementation science where it's like, well, now that we know things work, which is hopefully where we're getting to with this in the next ten years or so. Um, that how do we coordinate it and make it part of care? And that's you know, we started to talk about that vision. That well, what if every person had. Um, some training and how to, you know, either, well, in the program we developed potentially Mm -hmm. (laughs) or in other ones similar that can support them in dealing with any discomfort or in um, planning their health going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this needs in my, you know, humble opinion needs to be part of care more that we need to be offering it more systematically and not just having people go find it on their own with the have resources for it. So make it covered financially. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's where the most resistance that I see being is it's just not part of the standard of care yeah. in today's world. It's like prescribe a pill, send them home, good luck kind of thing. But you can apply, like, to get people, like, dialed in with mind-body. And I think it goes beyond that. Like, so I guess my question is, like, what other things in this whole realm of, tools these ancient tools let's say um are there i mean i'm thinking like i go to these sound baths yeah and to me just like well first of all what is sound is energy is vibration so so is everything right every cell in our body is energy so to me it's like any source of stimuli whether it's sound whether it's you know just the the breeze, you know, or, or uh, being in a room full of people doing the same thing. You know, there's an energy that's shared. So what, mm-hmm. what might some other things that come up in this whole space beyond simple movements and some simple breath work that could be ripe for research in, in this area? Yeah, well, people are starting to do at least research on... Um you're saying like nature and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, or in community. I mean, I, I, I think at this point it's pretty clear that social support and being in a community is very yeah. helpful. I think that most people. So it comes to at least in the framework for how we do research now. You kind of alluded to it, it's like somewhat reductionist. Like we want to say like 
this practice helps for pain, right? It's like, well, it could also help for many other things, which mm. we'll call secondary outcomes probably. Um, and there's so many other, it can affect different people in different ways. And there's a lot of complexity with, mm -hmm. with a lot of these practices. And so there are some people that have studied at least what they call like the nonspecific effects, like the, um, caring attention that people provide. So there's a lot of work in medicine now about, about like, um, provider patient communication and how to make that more of like a mindful conversation, mm -hmm. for example. There's work on the expectations we talk about, like having a positive outlook and conveying even treatments in a positive light. Like there, you can ethically kind of use the placebo effect in some ways, right? Like mm -hmm. tell people you think something can help. Mm -hmm. um, if you, if it does, if there's efficacy and then, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot, at least with the relationship between the providers, that people are really um, working with already, too. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's like, well, can we refer out into the community to other things happening? I think that's where the providers like to have evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, I yeah. love. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you brought up placebo effect because that is fascinating too. That that our minds can just you know take on the the expectation that something's going to work and it does just because we believe in it you know and, and that's kind of the gold standard to benchmark pharmaceuticals is it does it perform better than placebo right so placebo is not woo it's real right it's just it's how our bodies and minds uh produce energy i think that overcomes whatever the pathogen or, or or healing that needs to be done and uh i'm trying to get to a question here yeah, well we're trying to leverage that right that's yeah. what like a lot of the mind body practices are doing it's like well we know the mind can do this so mm -hmm. how do we enhance that yeah and i'm wondering yeah. like because i mean meditation has been a great tool for me for a lot of reasons but um or and i just i think that um it's important to to slow up the brain sometimes like we have all this especially in our society with all these expectations and all these stimuli and especially with phones and internet and everything now it's like we don't have time to reflect i mean intentionally if you if you do it then you do it but as far as letting kids be bored enough so that they can be creative even adults, you know, be bored long enough to, like, understand what that's telling you. Like, what is, how, how can you be bored when you got so much other things to do? Or maybe that's the distraction from keeping you from being bored, whether it's your, you know, your, your smartphone or, you know, the, the casino. <laughs> or, yeah, like when you or, let your mind rest your you know things connect and you come up with a new idea right, right. yeah <laughs> and i think i mean there's i know what what is uh there's there's all kinds of like somatic thing like tapping and what what's the one where they use like uh i don't know if it's electrical impulses or sound um that rewires the brain i've, I've seen some of that for ptsd and stuff like that but again all we're doing is going back to energy mm -hmm. yeah there's some people here that use some brain stimulation or reprogram yeah there's all kinds of stuff out there so it is interesting to to study and mm -hmm. see what's possible there's even some i believe energy research mm -hmm. being done too well i think we yeah. know i mean i think 
I think a lot of people have known this for for quite some time. It's just we always want to have stuff scientifically proven, and I think some of this is going to be real hard to like distill down. Like you said, to reductionists, like the A causes B or A alleviates B or whatever it is, because it can be a cascade of all the things that are embodied in the movement, the breath, and the touching, and the whatever it is, the reflecting, the journaling, and all that. Um, I don't really have a question. Yeah, there. well, that's really good. the multidisciplinary <laughs> work is it's you know really mm-hmm. exciting because you have people that know how to measure different components of it, and so a lot of the yoga research has started with things like physical therapy and psychology, you know. But I think people are getting interested from other areas too, and mm-hmm. hopefully, we'll get some neat. Other questions. Well, have you used those tools? Like, have you been in a situation where you were in pain and needed to use it? Well, so when I was in um, working with that group that did hypnosis, they did hypnosis with me. I had a surgery and a broken arm, and I had that experience. And yeah, it definitely adds richness to research to have personal experiences Mm -hmm. that you people call me search sometimes that you can draw upon to, to measure better, you know? Yeah, yeah. And or to have insights that at a different level. So, um, that helped me. I mean, it was, I had a tool that they gave me before the surgery that when I was by myself after I could use like a visualization mm-hmm. and, and it, it did feel empowering in that mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I reason I asked, I have a, I had an experience of just a neck, uh, a neck thing. It was causing immense pain and nothing they gave me would touch the pain. It was just so severe. And I just remember laying down, closing my eyes, and like visualizing the numbers as I was counting, just to give me something to distract. And for the first time in like three weeks, the pain went away while I was doing that. And it lasted, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes after I finished doing it, and then it came back. But the thing was, it was so cool that I just like programmed myself to ignore it long enough so it would subside some. So... That's they finally figured out what was wrong and, you know, ended up giving me Dilaudid, <laughs> which... Which helped, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, 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 you know, that'll, that's the mountaintop right there. <laughs> but, but no, I mean I, I, I mean, I just believe in it so much because I've done it. I've experienced that, like, just mind over matter, you know, just... And I just think that, um, you know, it's so important that we're having this type of research and getting funding for it and people are interested in it and it's showing showing some results yeah thank you i'm grateful that they're funding this type of work now too yeah, yeah. well how does uh when, tell me about your timeline for this this grant yeah, for our have. next step so we hope to start recruitment in the new year getting all of our ducks in a row and um then we'll be enrolling participants for about four years and have another year it's a five-year grant so i guess mm-hmm. another six months or so to do our analyses and share what we learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you keep how do you keep uh, motivated in those large timescales like that? You know, a five year project it seems like pretty daunting. It is. There's a lot of prep too. You know, even to get it funded, we wait like you know a year to get feedback, and then another year to usually get it funded. So it's a big, long process. What keeps me motivated is some of what we talked about is hearing from people that it's helped them, and then the team I work with really, you know, I'll, I'll get into a point sometimes where I'm not as interested, but I'll have a team member that'll give it some energy 
And so we keep each other going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do you yeah. have several research projects that you're working on at the same time? Yeah, we do. Typically, I have um, a few others. So there's one where we're um, working again with an, um, a yoga based project in chemotherapy settings. So mm-hmm. in the chair while people are receiving um, chemotherapy treatments. So a chair yoga program. Mm-hmm. And then um, a health coaching pilot we just finished up. So we'll be writing a grant for that. So yeah, we have things in different stages. Mm-hmm. Where we're writing or we're running this study. Or, uh, I'm, more, yeah. I'm wondering what came to mind. Um, As you were saying that, like, I was just out, like I said, in Las Vegas, and they had all these immersive VR experiences now and stuff. And I was just thinking about, you know, someone sitting there doing chemo, they had a VR headset with just some beautiful nature scene with some ambient music and then maybe even like a counter in the side that, that... you know, you you measured your breath with like you just you know I don't know if you've seen the Calm app with the breathing yeah, exercises and stuff. There's some great research with the the Calm app in mm-hmm. people with cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I'm just thinking. There's it seems like it's rich with possibilities for those who want to go into that type of effort to see what you know visuals and audio and and just experiences might. Uh, eliminate pain and, and it actually encourage healing and help healing. Yeah, I, I imagine that the VR ex- virtual reality experiences could make some of this more accessible to some people because there's so much visual. I think that's what's helpful with, say, yoga versus meditation is at least there's some tangible movement and breathing going on, whereas mm-hmm. some people find just sitting there quietly not as accessible as moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can help people get focused, right, mm-hmm. to, to add the movement and breathing. Um yeah, I'm really curious. I have seen little bits here and there at the virtual reality. I think it just adds a little bit of the dimension of, um, you know, how much you have to pay for the devices, mm-hmm. except you're also potentially paying for someone's time. So, yeah, yeah. It's trade, you know, I think well, I was thinking, it's more worth it. I was thinking, too, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I listen to these, you know, plant medicine guys and, um, and you know, they talk about the you know, the deep visuals that come from, say, ayahuasca or, or psilocybin or LSD even. Um, and I know that there are organizations doing deep research on PTSD and having some great successes with that. And I was just thinking of, like, you know, you could mimic some of that, you know, someone who's been deep in that could perhaps create visuals that map to key stories that whatever that experience is trying to tell you that someone could view and without you know having to take without having to take you know experimental things and and just being able to you know i guess connect the visuals to something egoic or something deep within the body to unleash the power of healing let's say you know i mean yeah, there are quite a few meditation researchers getting into the research on the, you know, some of the um, things you mentioned. So, um, yeah. I do think that would be an interesting project that somebody that's accessed that state to then mm-hmm. help recreate it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I, think I mean, the goals are similar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I think they talk about Kundalini yoga, and if you get deep enough into the breath, where you can have those moments of yeah, call them satori or or I call them when I'm in hot yoga and I have those moments like I'm deep in the breath and I'm just real like everything's tuned out 
I'll get these like I don't know if you remember those monitors with the button on the back. It's a D. It's called degauss, and when you clicked it, it would demagnetize because over time that energy would get built up. And you're talking about the old cathode ray tube monitors, and um, that you press that button and go, and it would just release the energy. And sometimes I think that's happening to me in my body when I'm in these almost trance-like states from just deep. In, in breath and body work and you know it's it's unlike anything i've ever experienced and it's all natural i mean i, yeah. I you know i have like colors i mean my eyes are closed and i'm seeing like visuals and colors not in anything like super high resolution but just patterns and shapes and things but in very vivid color and it just happens like for a brief second but it feels like something was reset Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like that, you know, it's like where else in, in, in our lives do we get that that deep body and mind sort of sink, you know, or, 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 or you know, degaussing? <laughs> yeah, so you imagine that you're experiencing similar states without having to take yeah. any medication. Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think there's probably some, you know, well, you said hypnosis, but, I mean, I'm, I'm sure just deep concentration and deep meditation to allow the mind just to go in neutral for a little bit and and how important that is to to i mean like we rest the body if we work it too much we overtrain and cause injury or or something and it's sort of like the mind too the mind has to take a break and sleep's not necessarily i mean i know sleep is like when it sort of resets itself and you know your brain's working when you're sleeping but like just in our conscious moments to be able to like put it in neutral you know and yeah i think of my meditation practice often as a way to rest my mind mm-hmm. or give it something else to rest on yeah makes sense um now i have this vision of of y'all in the lab doing all this great <laughs> there's yoga over here and meditation and you know how do y'all how do you incorporate that into i mean i know you're a practitioner but like yeah. is there a kind of culture in your lab that where everyone's kind of on board that's such a great question um i'd say our probably day-to-day life looks pretty similar to a lot of other people's as far as you know we are at the computer a lot and Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i aim to at least i have been part of um research meetings that are not mine where people have started with um mindfulness practices i do like that idea Mm -hmm. i haven't necessarily um, regularly incorporated it, although I do have an opportunity to. So, mm-hmm. um, I do tend to collaborate. I think with a lot of people that it's more of the what we talk called like non-specifics that really value the personal connection and those kind of things. Where the culture, I think, is similar to going mm-hmm. to a community that practices yoga or meditation. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I had that idea when we were at that uh, Myrtle Beach. Um, meeting and we're sitting there in that all day cold kind of dark room 500 yards from the beach with no windows and just how torturous that was and you know I've I've brought it up in several instances where um, you know planting the seed to have more mindfulness and movement in these day-long activities I mean we did it we just had an AHEC statewide meeting at Benton Convention Center and we did 
you know, morning stretch, and we did, you know, afternoon meditation. So we kind of, very, you know, mixed it up. And it wasn't but for like five minutes, but it seems like, you know, especially in healthcare, we could incorporate a lot more of that in in those. Even if it's just, you know, 10-minute yoga break or, you know, 10-minute meditation, everybody just drop what you're doing. We're going to... I mean, we have the peaceful pause here mm-hmm. at 9.54, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. But, the, I mean, more of those things. And I think, you know, workplace, home, uh, you know, and, and especially in healing, I think. So yeah, I appreciate that. Some of the conferences I go to that are more like behavioral medicine focused, we do start to see that more because mm-hmm. that's people, you know, that are researching this. But then, yeah, we go to a more, um, let's say, like treatment-focused conference there's less of it so mm-hmm. far. Maybe there's all different cultures and different conferences, but my experience has been, it hasn't yeah. made it there yet. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I, and I'm just, I'm, it's I'm, a good also, idea. I'm also angling for, you know, changing up my role to be more active within, because I'm at the computer a lot yeah. too, and, I've, and I'm, I'm an extrovert, and, and so now we're getting back to more in-person things. And it's like, well, I could combine my love of yoga and fitness and, and all that in with, the the you know the the health care continuing professional development environment yeah i think that's how it starts <laughs> right is that you make your role work for you better and mm-hmm. then it'll work for other people better too probably yeah i mean and yeah. also i think it's it's that message of uh you know caring for yourself self-care and wellness instead of illness treatment you know, and just keeping on that wellness continuum to be mindful of what it, you know, and intentional, I think. So I think mindful and intentional go together in that, you know, you're you're slowing down everything. So then when your thoughts come back, you can say, well, what do I really want to get out of today? You know, or what do I want to get out with this interaction with Stephanie? You know, or, you know so you can be way more intentional and those thoughts kind of give you that, directionality to to your actions to where to where you want to take it um again i don't know what my question is but <laughs> yes yeah, good conversation hey, yeah. i appreciate i'm resonating with that yeah yeah well i mean and it, it gives me a lot of hope because i you know as a as a newly minted coach too i you know people immediately think oh you know like physical training you know physical trainer or nutritionists they immediately think diet and exercise and it's like you know better stress coping mechanisms and that could be five minutes of meditation every morning or or whenever and just adding those in small bits so it's it's like i see like this you know being around adjacent to healthcare for a long time and now i'm starting to see like a real uh, momentum moving towards people taking really charge of their wellness, especially after COVID. And it's like, well, you can continue doing what you're doing and be at risk, or you can change and be a lot less at risk. And, and, and in either of those cases, you could just say, well, I'll just take whatever, you know, whatever they tell me is the, is the solution, or I can, be self-determinant and say, well, no, I'm going to be as fit as I can be given my time and effort and attitude towards it. Yeah. I think what we've all been through collectively is another motivator for changing Mm -hmm. as well. And I think living it 
inspires other others to think they can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just so yeah. thrilled to see you know in the spaces I've been in over to say the last ten years with group fitness and yoga studios, and it's just I see so many new faces coming to yoga and coming and just like you know been hearing people talk about this so much and. You know, they, they, you know, and it is life changing. It really is. And to see people talk about, oh, well, two years ago, I couldn't lift my arm above my shoulder. And now they're, you know, moving as normal. And it's all because they chose to apply the energy and, and have an open mind to, to, moving and stretching and breathing and all that stuff so i think again it's back to that one comment i made is like it's hard to control for any one thing because it does create a cascade of good things in your toolbox that just keeps growing as you keep doing it yeah i do yeah it's definitely worth i guess if we're talking about research again measuring that as we start to do the larger you know the larger class studies i've seen people look at that and it's definitely mm-hmm. does lead to other health behaviors so, now yeah. speaking of measurement how how do you measure things in a you know a comparison study like you're talking about yeah so there's quite a lot of work that has been gone into you know questionnaire development at this mm-hmm. point where they're pretty sophisticated like they can compare how we ask questions about say pain or distress to like population norms, for example, or how much of a change is actually something people can feel. And, and so we have questionnaires that are mm-hmm. primarily our, out, our primary outcomes. And then we have other things like a little activity monitor people wear to see how much movement or sedentary they mm-hmm. are. And um, so it's more sensitive to when people get up from sitting or laying down because they'll be after surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then there'll be things in the medical chart, like how long they stayed in the hospital and that kind of thing. So okay. we have kind of a range of, you know, more primary outcomes that we expect to change and some that we're exploring to see if there's something that we can budge to in the future with a larger study. Well, what what can you tell me about, like, the frequency of, of treatments and stuff? Like, you know, how often would a patient do your intervention? Yeah, so we have it where we aim to do it be simple and brief and something people potentially could do every day. That's what we're hoping. Mm -hmm. And um, that's typically how I believe yoga meditation intended to be. It's almost like we had a investigator here years ago. She said something like, if you take an aspirin, you're not going to expect it to still be working three days from now. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of how people sometimes treat these things. And it's like, it's going to be more effective if it's something that you're more regularly doing. So that's, the model that we have. So we give people, we're talking to them once before surgery and once after and guiding them through it, but it's really a, a self-directed, like they can do it when they want to intervention, hopefully daily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's a great analogy, the aspirin thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You just got to keep doing it. Yeah. Got to keep doing it. So tell me what, what uh, sparked your interest back in health coaching? Um. That's a good question. So I actually have started to see people using coaching as more of like a leadership coaching, even in academics. Mm -hmm. And so that sparked my interest as I'm getting further along in the path to start um, coaching others Mm -hmm. in my profession as well. So that's part of it. And I think it'd be interesting to merge leadership coaching with the health coaching, especially with, as you've mentioned, some of the burnout and Mm -hmm. kind of experience that healthcare people are having right now. So I'm hoping to 
go in my future professional direction that way too. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's I keep running running into people who are on those similar paths. You know, they yeah. found uh, fitness or yoga and mindfulness and and really holistic living, and then health coaching. And it's all about serving others and wanting a healthier planet. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And it's like every day that I get to teach fitness or coach someone, I mean, it just reinforces, you know, that I finally found my mission and purpose is to, to, to help other people find that spark within themselves that, that wants them to be their better self. You know, that, that does that, you know, guided imagery or whatever tools they use to, to think about that. And I love, you know, just the word vision. You know, what is your vision? If you write it down, draw a picture of it, you know, and, and that kind of people get taken aback. Like, no one's ever asked me, really. But, you know, yeah, I did a vision board in high school or something or, you know, those kind of things. But to as an adult to say, you know, sometimes... I think life comes at you and you can live it by default, like just responding to what happens. Or you can say, no, these are my goals. This, this is my being way more intentional about it and designing your life instead of living by default. So I think all these tools help in that. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you and see that there's research on this stuff to, you know, and, and it's focused on pain and outcomes with that. But it just, it, it, it can be applied to so much more. Yeah, it's exciting to hear you say that, that, you know, this is just a way to be more intentional and proactive and live in a way that you can be thriving um, versus just surviving. Yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah. Well, tell me a little more about Stephanie. What, what are your hobbies? <laughs> more my, Aside from yoga. Aside from yoga. <laughs> um, well, I love walking my dog. Most, mm-hmm. If anybody lives in my neighborhood sees me doing that regularly. Um, her name is Prana, which is yeah. fitting <laughs> for my interests. That, that yoga energy. Um, yeah, I have uh, two sons and a spouse, um, Alec. And, yeah, we spend a lot of time hiking as well. Okay. So, so Stand-up paddleboarding, outdoor activities. Forced bathing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank well, you. Gr- well, great. Well, I appreciate you coming on and telling us. And we look forward to seeing the results of your five-year study. Thank you. It might be a few years, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me? Oh, no. This has really been an exciting time. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, and where can people find more about what you're doing? Yeah, I have a a website at Wake, and we can share that. I'm happy to So go to wakehealth.edu and and search for Stephanie Soul, Ph.D. And I love that your last name, Soul, even though it's not spelled as... O-U-L. Yeah, psychology is the study of the soul, so it feels appropriate. Thanks. Right on. on. Well, thanks again. Take care.